So I'm sad to say that we are, um, like the summer is just slipping past us, uh, and it's moving at a high speed, like high speed runaway train. And we are at the last mini-series of our summer on Chatham season. If you've been here, you know that we've been using art as a tool to look at scripture. Um, we've been, for the first third of the summer, we looked at the Psalms, and we held the Psalms up beside visual art, different paintings, different um, uh, drawings and sketches and uh, we looked at them to see if that helped us illuminate who God is uh, in our lives. In the second series, which just ended last week, we looked at uh, the story of Exodus. Uh, we looked at Moses. We looked at Shifra and Pua. We heard stories from uh, own, or kind of our own Exodus with some people, with Loyan uh, and with Seuss. And we held those things up with music. So we looked at music and the Exodus. And in this last series, we're going to another part of the Old Testament. If you've caught on, you see that we're in the Old Testament all summer. Uh, we are looking at the prophets. The prophets are crazy. The prophets are like some of the, these people that it is so hard to understand necessarily what the prophets are saying. Uh, they are these mysterious bunch of people who receive these words of God and then proclaim them to, to people kind of all, all across time, really. Um, but we're going to use disruptive art as a tool to look at the prophets. And what I mean by disruptive art is uh, art that makes you stop, makes you think, and possibly makes you live your life in a different way. So we're going to look at a few examples of that over the next week. Now, but first, before we go into that, I want to talk a little bit more about these mysterious prophet people. So prophets, you know some of the names in the Old Testament. You know Isaiah. You've heard that. You've heard of Ezekiel. You've heard of Jeremiah. You've heard of Hosea. You've heard of... Um, you know, Amos, whoever it might be, Micah. You've heard of all of these prophets, and we kind of have this image in our head of what prophets are. And for a lot of us, and pop culture tells us that prophets are fortune tellers. Prophets are not fortune tellers. That's an important thing for us to know. They do a lot of things. They, do, they, they speak a lot of different things to different people throughout centuries that span the Old Testament. But they are not just in the business of giving you your horoscope. They are not just in the business of reading crystal balls. They are not uh, Nostradamus with a long beard and kind of their eyes roll back in their head and they cast a vision for what the future is going to look like. Let me give you a little bit of a different image of who the prophets are and what they do. Picture your favorite makeover television show. Um, whether it be makeover of a room, of a house, like Extreme Home Makeover, or whether that be... Um, uh, the, the British show that I love right now, something grand design, interior grand design, or picture my favorite show right now, which is Queer Eye. So Queer Eye uh, is the TV show that, for those of you that don't watch Netflix, five guys go into a person's life and completely disrupt their life. They go in unannounced. Obviously, it's staged, but it's unannounced. And they burst in, um, and they begin to make over people's lives. And what they do first is that they go in and they assess people's lives. And they say, you got a bland wardrobe, you got a bad personality, you got, you know, and they kind of begin to like, you know, you got a bad eating habit. And they go through and they kind of give it to them, right? And so the prophets are like that in a way. They go in and they give just an honest opinion of where a person is. But prophets also, like Queer Eye, cast a vision for where that person could be and should be in the future. And they say, so they cast this vision of what if you did wear more earth tones or whatever it might be? Or what if you did, uh, you know, lose 100 pounds? Or what if you did do this? And they cast this vision for who they might become. 
That's a little bit more of what the prophets do. The prophets are those people who disrupt a person's life. They go in and they break the status quo. They go in and they transform a person or speak words that will hopefully transform a person out of their old ways and into new ways. The obvious difference between this, and I'm not saying that Jonathan Van Ness is a prophet, but what I am saying is that there is some similarity between the the ways they go about doing this type of thing. The major difference being is that Queer Eye and other shows like that, like Extreme Home Makeover, are built on and founded on people's opinions. The prophets are founded on God's promises. So it's not just this opinion of what the future can be. It's this image of what the future will be. And it's the prophets who go in and cast that vision and invite people to live a different life. We're going to look at the prophets over the next three weeks. Um, today, I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the things the prophets do, which is give messages of peace and hope. Colin, next week, is going to talk about judgment. I'm going to talk about hope. So uh, that's, that's what happens when you're the preacher. So you get to do that. So here, I want to give you just a little bit of background about what we're, where we're going today. So we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is probably the most well-known prophet. Um, Isaiah is the largest prophet book prophetic book, and it spans a long period of time. In fact, we don't think it's just the writings of Isaiah. We think it's actually more of a tradition of of prophecy, but we do know that there was a prophet, um, son of Amos, who lived and was a prophet to the southern kingdom. Important thing to know, um, at this time in our history of the people of Israel, the people of Israel have split into two kingdoms, and there's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and there's a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. And what's happening in this scene that we're about to hear from, or this prophecy, what's going on around them, is that Judah is about to be under attack. Because King Ahaz and Judah have been invited to be a part of a political alliance, a military alliance, to fight off this big threat, but they refuse to do it. Because they don't want to get caught up in this world of kind of politics and war. So what the alliance does is they attack And they try to take King Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah by force. And so King Ahaz is on this brink of war. There's potential for them to be attacked. And he turns to his prophet, his kind of trusted confidant, Isaiah, to hear what the future will hold, to hear what God is speaking to them at this time. And this is what Isaiah says. It's Isaiah 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. And I invite you to follow along. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw not heard, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
So if you were just to read this passage of scripture without the context of what's going on between Ahaz and Isaiah, this is a beautiful image of what the world's going to become and what the future holds. We have this amazing image of that day in which God's throne, God's home, will dwell above all other homes. God will be on a mountain, essentially implying that power will exist in God and all the other things where we think power exists now, all the other mountaintop things like government and money, those will all be no more in terms of their power. God will be the one powerful God and will reign above and across all things. There won't be any political jockeying or wars that people fight about to see who can have the best position because God will reign. All the people will stream to this mountain because all the people know that that's where God lives. Remember, in the Old Testament, we're in temple culture where God exists in the temple. And so people go to the temple to experience God. And all nations will do that in this image. But they go to this temple and they go to this mountain, not necessarily just to encounter God, but they go to this temple to learn God's ways. If you heard in there what God does, all the people are going there because they want to learn the wisdom of God. And that's where I want to pause. This is a beautiful image, but that might be the most striking detail of what this image looks like. Can you imagine a world where everyone seeks God's wisdom? Not just Sometimes, all the time. What if we lived in a world where everyone sought God's wisdom instead of seeking the wisdom of political leaders and celebrities and Netflix and, uh, and uh, you know, self-help books? The world might look a little bit different if we went to God's wisdom first. And there, when, God, uh, when the people do go to see God's wisdom, they begin to understand the world in the way and see the world in the way that God might understand it. Now, Isaiah mentions this very prickly word about halfway through this vision. I don't know why Isaiah has to do this. He throws in the word judge. God teaches, God arbitrates, and God judges the nations. There's something about that word that we don't like, and you're going to hear a lot about it next week. But this week, there's something still that we don't really like, that word judgment. But maybe it's because when we think of judgment, we think of it through the judgment of the world around us. The way that we operate judgment now, the way that we cast judgment now means that there are winners and losers. The way that we have judgment now means that someone wins the court case and someone loses the court case. It means that there's probably going to be an appeals process afterwards because somebody didn't like how the judgment turned out. But if we're going to be a people in this scene, we've sought the wisdom of God, and so we're not seeking to, to be placed under judgment as the world judges God's judgment is quite different. God's judgment is eternal, but God's judgment isn't also where there's winners and losers. It's where there's equity and where there's peace, where people get what they not only just deserve, but what people need in their lives in order to thrive. It's not really a great word that we like to use, but when God's judgment is enacted, there is peace. And we get to that beautiful scene, and you can imagine it, where people begin to beat their swords into plowshares. It's an expression that you've probably heard a lot. The idea that we have these images and we have these tools for war and we turn them into tools for giving new life. Plowshares, tilling the earth, helping to create, not to destroy. It's a beautiful scene. It's a great image. But let's put it back in the context. A king that's about to be attacked is getting this beautiful image of what it might look like in the far distant future. 
I'm sure King Ahaz thought, that's a great promise. That's awesome, Isaiah. But there are troops that are about to come into this city. So I'm going to need something a little bit more than that at this point. And that's where Isaiah in the prophecy doesn't leave this vision as this future thing that exists where God's going to reign in the future. He gives us this one line that brings that whole scene into the current reality. And he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That line brings that far distant prophecy of the future back into King Ahaz's area of control, what he can do. Come, Ahaz, let us walk in the light of the, war, of the Lord. I know that there are wars around you. I know that you're about to be attacked, but come, let us walk in the light now. Let us be examples of the wisdom and the justice of God now. Let us reflect those promises that will one day be totally in fulfillment, but let's reflect them now. Even if that means we disrupt the present state of war and we kind of throw our enemies a curveball by laying down our swords. Isaiah never says that this vision will come about by God's doing, mind you. It doesn't say that God will one day enact this. We know that to be true. Instead, Isaiah extends an invitation at the end of this vision for Ahaz and thus for us to participate in what that vision will look like. This passage reminds me of a piece of art that's in Charlotte. Um, th so there's, a, there's an art that's there in Charlotte. There's a school called uh, Belmont Abbey. You may have heard of it. Small, little school, Catholic school, Benedictine um, college that's there. And about 50 years ago, there was a, a student that had heard the story and kind of legend of this stone that existed and was buried out back behind the monastery where the monks actually lived. And the story goes that this, this stone um, was once used by Native Americans as kind of a ritual stone, as something to, to use during ritual or during ceremony. And then for a long time, it was lost. And then the stone was later, fast forward 200 years, and it was used actually on the piece of property where Belmont Abbey exists, which used to be a massive 600-acre farm. And that farm uh, had slaves. And the stone was used as a slave auction block. So slaves would stand upon it and be auctioned off. Whenever traders came in, whether um, slave masters came into Charlotte, they would go and they would trade for slaves and they'd buy slaves there. The stone was eventually buried after the slavery ended. And what you have is monks who eventually uncovered the stone again. And when they uncovered the stone, they began to pray for forgiveness around the stone. And this is in the early 19th century. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, early 20th century. Excuse me. And they began to pray around the stone. And onlookers thought that was weird. They were hearing about monks that were praying around this slave stone. And they're monks and they were speaking in Latin and other foreign languages. And so people thought that they were worshiping slaves. And so the monks decide this stone has too much baggage, has too much pain. So they buried it. And they hid it forever. Until 1965, when a student who heard about what this stone had been for about 100 years and went out and decided to dig it up. So they dug up this stone that's about three by three, and they sandblasted it, and they cleaned it up. And when they cleaned it up, they decided to, uh, they gave it to a stone artist who took it and dug a little bit of a hole in the top of it, and they put a plaque on it. And they decided that on the plaque, they would write this message, upon this rock, men once were sold into slavery, 
Now upon this rock, through the waters of baptism, men become free children of God. The stone now sits at the front of the basilica at Belmont Abbey and serves as their baptismal font for this church. What had once been a symbol of hate, a symbol of pain, and a symbol of death is now a symbol of life, a symbol of freedom. The people shall beat their swords into plowshares, shall turn the old ways into new ways for life. Beating your swords into plowshares requires, like it did for Belmont Abbey, to own up to the fact that you in your history have carried a sword. You have swords. There are symbols around you. There are things that you do that might symbol or might cast off this image of death or image of pain for others. Recognizing that you carry swords is the first step to turning them into plowshares. Once that begins, then redemption can really shine through us, as Isaiah's vision says. Isaiah, in very prophet-like fashion, doesn't just say this is going to be an image that God does later. It's not just God will beat the swords into plowshares. The people will do it. So let's start today. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord now. Come, Ahaz, I know that there's a war that's, that's looming. I know that you're about to be attacked. But what ways can you point to life in the midst of a war? What ways can you point to hope and promise in the midst of darkness? Come, Walter. Walter is my friend uh, that lives in Bethlehem. Uh, Walter um, is a fast, very interesting person. Uh, and and we, when we were living together in Bethlehem, there would be conflicts that would happen at the wall, Bethlehem's in Palestine. And the conflicts in between the wall at Palestine and Israel would often result in the Palestinians being tear gassed by the Israeli troops. So Walter would go after the streets had cleared, and he one thing he would do is pick up all of the canisters of tear gas, a way of cleaning the streets. But then he would turn these tear gas canisters into Christmas ornaments, appropriate for Bethlehem, right? And he would sell them around the world. And he would take all the money that he had collected and give it back to the refugee camp that had been tear gassed. Swords to plowshares. Darkness to light. Death to life. Church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, let us be people who in the midst of darkness can point to hope. Come, let us be knowledgeable of the fact that we carry swords and that there's a long process of us turning those signs of pain into signs of hope. It's not a distant prophecy. It's not a one that exists in the future. It's not a fortune to be told. It's a promise to be lived. Come, let us beat our swords into plowshares. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.